Okay, we are going to study Moses as an example of a person of faith. It says in Hebrews 11.23, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And we'll stop there in the, uh, with that part of the story of Moses. Now the passage that we're going to start with, verse 23, it tells the story that actually is found in Exodus 2. And let's turn to that. Exodus 2, beginning with verse 2. And we'll find that the the story in Exodus, as we have it in our Bible, differs a little bit in detail than the interpretation in Hebrews. And we'll find that, once again, the reason is that the book of Hebrews is following the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament. And the Greek Old Testament says that both of his parents are involved in hiding uh, the baby, or keeping the baby hidden, whereas the Masoretic text just mentions the mother. But the, uh, a lot of Jewish commentary that was extant in the first century that they can find mentions the, the, both parents, and that's how the story was recounted amongst the Jews. And so the book of Hebrews is simply doing what they already did. And the detail really doesn't uh, affect the outcome much, but that's why it's different. And it says in um, Exodus 2, 2, and the, I'll start with verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and born a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could not hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it amongst the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Now, uh, the background was that because the Hebrews were being blessed by God, they, they were slaves. Remember how they became slaves in Egypt? What, what happened? Yeah, they, they ended up, well, they ended up going to Egypt because of Joseph. And the famine that had happened. And Joseph had been in Egypt by God's plan, even though his brothers sold him into slavery and meant it wickedly. The Bible says God meant it for good. And the family was preserved alive because of Joseph becoming a prominent person in Egypt because of his ability to interpret the dreams of the Pharaoh. Now it says that there arose a king who knew not Pharaoh. So this future king comes along, and, and who are these uh, Hebrews? What are they doing in Egypt? I think we'll put them to work. And they end up becoming slaves. Now, these were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the reason they were in Egypt can be seen on the scene of history, but it also can be seen in the sovereign purposes of God. Because in Genesis 15, it was prophesied, or spoken directly by God to Abraham that his descendants would be would be serving for force before they'd come back to the land. And it said the reason was the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. God was not going to wipe out the inhabitants of Canaan until they were wicked enough to warrant it. And so for 400 years, these people became a nation, the descendants of Jacob and his 12 sons. So, that all transpired, and now they become mighty, and they so, so much so they were seen as a threat to the Pharaoh, so he told them, the, the midwives, to when the, he had a son, to throw him into the Nile River in order to kill all these babies. And so here's yet another pogrom against the Jews in history. There have been many others. There was one planned in the time of Esther. Uh, they were uh, uh, Hadrian, 
in 135 AD tried to wipe out the Jews. Hitler tried to wipe out the Jews. Herod tried to kill all these babies in Bethlehem for fear of the king of the Jews. Uh, so we have a, a long history of various nations wanting to destroy the Jews, and that is still true today, isn't it? Why is that? <laughs> why? Do, yeah. There, there's no good reason why the Jews are hated other than that God chose them. And I, th- I think Satan is behind this. Um, did you see what happened in today's paper? Uh, uh, they they vacated Gaza, thinking they're going to get peace. And what is the first thing they did? They started sh- shooting rockets from Gaza into Israel. Already, it was in a day's paper. They already went in there and started shooting rockets at Israel. Thank you very much. Well, a lot of people predicted that. Okay, so here we have one of these early incidents of let's kill the Jews. And in this case, throw the male Jews into the river. And so um, Moses was supposed to have gotten that treatment, but his parents saw him as a beautiful and put him in um, this basket. And they put uh, put it into the river. So he went into the river, but saved... Yes, Steph, what do you... Okay. Okay. Went into the river anyways. That, yeah. The irony is he did go into the river, only he went in in an ark of bulrushes. And you can see some typology there. Earlier in, Gen- in Genesis, Noah was saved from death in an ark. Mo- Moses was saved in an ark. And then later they had an ark of the covenant in the tabernacle. And these are all types of Christ. And so his sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking beside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from you among, from among the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. (laughs) So ironically, the mother becomes the nurse. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I shall give you your wages. So the the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, because I drew him up out of the water. So that's the story of Moses that's being recounted here in Hebrews chapter 11. And as you know, God had a big plan for Moses. Did you see the movie? (laughs) The Ten Commandments? Actually, it's a very good movie. Um, So back to our text. It says here, it was by faith that he was hidden. Now, William Lane discusses this. Because as we read it in the book of Hebrews, I mean in the book of uh, Exodus, it's hard to see exactly how that was faith because it seemed to, that they just were doing what they saw fit to do. And they didn't have any special revelation from God that we know about that said that Moses was going to be a great person. They just took action. But their action of hiding the child in defiance of the edict of Pharaoh, was such that they jeopardized their own lives. And the author of Hebrews sees that as faith. That they, they um, according to the commentary in the New Testament, they believed God. They trusted God. Now it says that because they saw he was a beautiful child, and if somebody could turn, um, you're right here close, how about Acts 7 and verse 20, and see the commentary by Stephen. Stephen preached about this when he just before he was martyred. Yes. At this juncture, Moses was born and was exceedingly beautiful in God's sight. For three months, he was nurtured in his father's house. Right. So his comment. Now Stephen's commentary was Moses was beautiful in God's sight. 
And um, according to William Lane, who was an expert in intertestamental Jewish literature and commentaries that uh, um, that they had, Midrash, they, they talked over these things in the synagogues for decades and decades. And so there became a, uh, layers of discussion about the Old Testament or about Torah. And according, according to that, they saw this in the same way, that Moses was beautiful in the sight of God. And so when Stephen preached that to the, his Jewish audience, they would have all accepted that because that was a, 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 an interpretation that they had heard in the synagogue. All right? Now, uh, I was going to quote Lane. He says here, The modality of faith is nevertheless respected for the sovereign design and promises of God are combined perfectly with a pattern of human behavior the future, despite adverse circumstances and extreme risk. That would be how this is seen as an act of faith. Look, there's this hope in the future, of the future of this child, and they're facing adversity and the possibility of death. And so their action is seen as faith. Okay? Anybody have a question about that? I have another quote here, William Lane, about the beauty of Moses. The evidence indicates a well-established tradition of interpretation that found in the word astios, which was our word for beautiful, an indication that the infant possessed a visible sign of God's elective favor. According to verse 23, Moses' parents found in the extraordinary appearance of their son a basis for faith in the as yet unseen purposes of God. His unusual attractiveness to them was a visible sign that he enjoyed God's favor and protection. Their readiness to risk their own lives to preserve the life of their son was a response of faith to a sense of vocation or calling. It says their confidence in God's power to accomplish his sovereign purposes more than outweighed their fear of reprisals because they had defied the royal decree. So, that's how this happens. And what we're finding over and over again in our understanding here of Hebrews is that the author of Hebrews was drawing upon already agreed upon interpretations in the Jewish community. And he takes what they already hold to be true and uses it as a motivator, as an exhortation for them to stay firm in faith. Because let's put this in the bigger context of Hebrews. What's the issue? The issue is that Christ is unseen. And the blood of the atonement is unseen. Because it was shed once for all. And Christ is at the right hand of the Father. As many in this community were being tempted to go back to the temple and the literal high priest and the literal blood of bulls and goats because these things were seen. These were tangible and uh, then they had a long tradition of following these, the Old Testament sacrifices. And the author of Hebrews is uh, drawing on their own tradition and interpreting the Old Testament in a way that they would agree with, just like Stephen did, and pointing out that there needs to be faith in that which is unseen, and that, and that Moses' parents were people that had faith in the unseen. Because look at where this is going. Um, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing to suffer in endurance. Um, and look at verse 27. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. So where this is going is right back to this idea of faith being the evidence of things not seen. And if you have to have some tangible religion that you can buy and put on your altar. And if you have to have some religious artifacts, you're not really exercising faith. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. And their temptation to apostatize was because of the fact that Christ is unseen. So Moses stands as an illustration of someone who had faith in what was unseen. In that case, the future promises of God. Okay, uh, you read that one. Uh, Denise, could you read uh, Isaiah 51 and verse 7? 
Yes, uh, Jack. Um, I can't help thinking it, uh, you know, there, at this point there were, what, a million and a half, two million Hebrews? I, I don't know what. Uh, yeah, I've heard numbers, but I'm not sure how they know. But I'm just thinking that of those, there must have been, what, 100,000 babies born? You know, Yeah. Uh, were there... Were there others that did the same thing? Uh, I don't know. Uh, scripture doesn't talk about it. We don't know that. But you would, you would surmise that, you know, here's an idea. <laughs> you know, that, yeah. that runs within this community so that others are doing the same thing. So you know, what I'm, where I'm going with this is that there's a, there's a sovereignty God, even in faith. Oh, yeah. That, you know, that, that brings us to that point, that brings Moses to this point. Right. Uh, that maybe others are doing the same thing, but God has not... Moses, yeah, this this was God, an act of God to preserve Moses because he was being raised up. And in the bigger narrative of Torah, Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy, you see the pattern. Okay, and we're, I've been preaching through Genesis, and I, it seems like I'm always back studying in Genesis lately. But the pattern is that God is preserving his promises. It started all the way back with Eve. The day that you was sin, you die. But rather than dying, God provided the animal skins or a sacrifice. And he gave a promise to Eve that her seed would crush the serpent's head. Then you have other patterns where God preserved uh, Noah. God preserved Isaac. God preserved Jacob. God preserved Joseph. And God preserved a family, a clan, a little clan. So out of all the peoples on the earth and all of the things that are going on, God is sovereignly choosing the lineage through which he would bless all the families of the earth. That that theme in Genesis 12.3 helps us understand not only Genesis, but Exodus and the rest of the Old Testament. God is going to bless all the families but he's going to do it through this specific means, the, these individuals and their descendants. And so here's this Levite, Moses, who's preserved in an ark. And there's a lot of typology going on here. I've said this often. I hope you're getting the idea now. The, the, the brilliance of the Bible and the way that it is integrated together from Genesis to Revelation, even though it was written over hundreds of years by many different authors, is such that I can't imagine how anybody could think it's anything but inspired by God. People would not be that brilliant to think of this. It's too intricate, and there's too many different people involved with it. And so this idea that he's saved in an ark is nothing less than a, an allusion back to the ark that saved Noah and, for, and, and forward to the ark of the covenant. <coughs> And forward to Christ himself, through which we're saved if we're in him. Okay, so we have a beautiful child. What, what does Isaiah 51 and verse 7 say? Listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults. So if you know the Lord and your and his laws in your heart, don't fear the reproach of men or their insults. Compromise of blessing. Yes. Um. We're going to have some cross-references to that in a couple more verses here. But it's um, the hatred of the hum- of different humans against the Jews that has gone on all the way back to the time of the Exodus can be explained by nothing other than the fact that God chose them. And I could never understand it. I, I grew- I've been in St. Louis Park since 19... 19- 75. It's the only city I've lived in since 75. And we have a lot of Jewish people in our city. And uh, our first place we lived, a guy across the alley, he just hated the Jews. Anytime he'd get a chance, he started in these horrible tirades against the Jews. And I hated listening to it. I just, what's, what's your problem? He was this Catholic guy that was just kind of nasty. Um, and all of these years living in St. Louis Park, all I, my experience are that the Jewish people are wonderful. Yes. And they've been wonderful friends. They've been good neighbors. Uh, we, uh, Colin mowed a lawn for Max, <laughs> a Jewish guy down the block. He just, by the way, he passed away in March. Um, 
and then I mowed the lawn. And I don't get it. There, why would you hate people that are good citizens, that take care of their property, that take care of their community, that care about their schools, and that care about the community that you live in? What's there to hate? Well, call them Christ killers. Hmm. Yeah, but, but why would somebody want to say that when their own scripture tells them that that was God's sovereign plan? Right, well, they didn't read the scripture. <laughs> they forgot to read the Bible. Isn't that where all the problems start? That's right, you're, the Lord plucked Brian out of the lost condition and brought you into the kingdom, didn't he? Amen. Praise God. Well, let's go back to, to the... Scripture, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now this here is a Jewish tradition. There's no Old Testament scripture that gives us this story of, of uh, somebody offering something to Moses and then Moses saying, no, I'd rather be with my people. But it was rich, a rich tradition in Jewish interpretation. And, uh, and obviously something did happen because he was considered the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And later he ends up killing an Egyptian, going off for 40 years into Midian, and coming back to bring his people. So, so something did happen. The tradition was filled in through Jewish mission discussion of what happened. Josephus talks about it in other Jewish writers. So this is a, this is, there's no one scripture. I have no cross reference for this. How old was he? We don't know. It's just a tradition. That's it. That's what, that's why we don't know. There's no detail. But, Linda, didn't you say you could find out if you watched the movie? Yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the movie, um, somebody tells him later that he's a Hebrew. But, I mean, like from the Bible, I'm just thinking that his mother told him. It could be. It's not stated. No. If he was... He was uh, beautiful in the sight of God, and, and it, it's not like anybody had to tell it. Hmm. I, I would imagine. So. Somehow he came to the knowledge, and we don't know why it isn't written in Exodus or somewhere, but he does come to the knowledge, yes. I, I guess, uh, you know, in that movie, uh, Cecil B. DeMille, he says that he got his information from Josephus and what's that other book? Philo. 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 Yeah, Josephus and Philo have these stories. And so that's where the movie uh, drew on Jewish tradition as well. Well, it's not too bad because so does the book of Hebrews. Well, in the movie, he's wrapped in a Levitical cloth or whatever. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know they sound like the, the maid shows them the handmaid or whatever of Pharaoh's daughter. Okay. Yeah, it has the cloth, you know? Okay. <laughs> yeah, but it was a pretty good one. <laughs> All right. So anyhow, one let's interpret Hebrews for its own sake. Hebrews is also inspired scripture, by the way. And so we can know this is true because the book of Hebrews tells us that, even if it isn't in Exodus. So Hebrews says he when he when he was had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So at some time there became a choice for Moses to be making. And I would suggest that there hasn't been much more of a profound choice that anybody's ever faced as far as the two different outcomes that lie before him. Can you imagine the, the dramatic nature of this choice? That if he, uh, the pharaohs were the most privileged people on the earth. Egypt was the most wealthy and advanced society on the earth at that time in history. And the artifacts of their many accomplishments are still can be seen in Egypt. Brilliant in engineering, uh, huge wealth. They, they were able to use the Nile, some of the very earliest uh, uses of irrigation and engineering. When I was studying the history of engineering in, uh, at Iowa State University in 1969, one of my one class that I had was history of engineering, and they were talking about what the Egyptians were able to do engineering-wise using the Nile to uh, to make their country prosperous agriculturally by um, 
accessing the water and the, and the different things that happen throughout the year. So here we have the, one of the most advanced, powerful, wealthy, and desirable kingdoms on the face of the earth at that time in history. And we have who is obviously very talented and has a great potential. And he could keep his mouth shut and stand in line potentially to ascend the throne of Egypt. But rather than do that, he chose to suffer affliction with a people who were slaves. That his Hebrew background and the promises of God, again, we're filling this in from what we know elsewhere, but the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must have been told to Moses. The promises of God were told to Moses. And he had a choice to make. And here it says, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 25, choosing rather, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Um, the lifestyle of the Pharaohs was indeed very sinful and would be something that, uh, would have looked desirable. But yet, and looking at the possibility of being one of these mistreated slaves doesn't look very desirable at all. Now, why would anybody make such a choice? Faith, right? Faith. Exactly. Yes, uh, Luann. This last week when we were kind of talking about it with Moses too, but it kind of blows the prosperity teaching. Here he was at the epitome of wealth, but he gave it up in obedience. And then you think, okay, well, God's going to bless him now because he was obedient. And so he raised his raised up as the leader of the Israelites, but he suffered the, you know, they were always complaining to him and grumbling, and he never got into the promise. Right. That's a good, that's a very good point, Luann. It, it is a, very much disproves the health and wealth gospel. And that, the New Testament points out Pharaoh as a great man of faith when he never received his blessing now. He never did. He, he, he had to wander with a bunch of people that didn't even appreciate him and die without going into the promised land. And it says that in Hebrews. And all, and these all died having not received the promises. And so this chapter would really not sound very good if they were putting it on um, Kenneth Copeland's broadcast. Well, Moses didn't send any money in. <laughs> Moses never sent in any money, he said. <laughs> That's it. Yes, Brad. Well, uh, there's, there's many examples in the Bible that God's people were rich. Judah and Joel wealthy. Uh, Abraham was wealthy. I mean, the Bible says it's the Lord God that gives you the power to get wealth. I mean, to, to establish His covenant and stuff. I mean, many people in the Bible were extremely wealthy. But it, but there's no correlation in the Bible between someone's wealth or lack thereof in their faithfulness to God. God is sovereign, and He can give us whatever estate in life He sees fit for His greater purposes. Job was wealthy and then very poor and then wealthy again. So sometimes it isn't always the same. Yes? The point about like the, the problem with the health and wealth stuff, one of the, the good of not teaching that is that it's teaching you to put your faith in money. And the point is whether or not God has blessed you with certain things, money or health or food even, um, or any sort of life, the point is we're supposed to trust in God alone because he's the source of all these things, and we should love him and Christ and what he did for us more than all of these things. Especially yeah. remember, remember what uh, Paul said, I've learned a secret of be abounding and being a baby. And so I think most of us, if we live long enough, get to have several different things happen in life. <laughs> I haven't had the wealth part yet, but it's right around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dick. <laughs> kind of a two-part thing. So when Joseph uh, died, they saved his bones, brought him back with him. He believed he went back home. Yes. Okay. The 400 years was that a prophecy ahead of time that they would be there 400 years? Yes, in Genesis 15. Okay. Then my point is, is that if he was taught the, the tradition, the learning of the Hebrews, yeah, you know the 400 years was up, just like we know in some other times. 
that the time was up, the Babylonian thing. And so therefore... That's how it worked with Daniel. Daniel just read the prophecy and said, it's time. I don't know if Moses did or not, but he he certainly had to know the Jewish traditions. Well, I'm looking at the deal when he's about 40 years old. He steps up and says, Okay, and it didn't work. Yeah, it's amazing how we have repeated themes like that because you have Abraham deciding, well, God made a promise so we have Ishmael. We actually listened to his wife who had the idea. And no, that wasn't it. He had to wait until it was too late. And we have the same thing. Moses is going to take matters in his own hands. And then we have a 40-year cycle before it actually happens. And God does that so that we know that our, our faith needs to be in God, not in man. A lot of times he'll, he'll, get, he'll let us get to the point where it becomes hopeless for us before he does whatever it is he's going to do. So that when he does, like Paul said, my grace is sufficient for thee. We know that God did it. And I think all of us probably have personal stories that are very similar to that. I know I do. Um, well, let's go back to this choosing to suffer ill treatment with the people of God. <clears throat> Here's something to consider. This last week I was thinking about this again. If you look at it throughout the Bible, starting in Genesis 3, and going all the way through the book of Revelation, if you can just sort of think of thematically. That's why it's so important to continually study the Bible. If you do it through your whole lifetime, pretty soon you get the Bible in your heart and mind, and you're able to think from Genesis to Revelation and find those themes. And it really makes the Bible come alive. And I was thinking about this matter of persecution against people of faith. And the fact is that the way the world operates in its fallen sinful condition, that there is always going to be a degree of suffering for people of faith because they are going against the whole thinking and viewpoint and purpose of the world. And it's not possible for the faith to get along with in a friendship way with the world. And when Paul, when James says friendship with the world is hostility to God, isn't that right? Did I get that right? I think so. Um, that's not just a, a hyperbole. That's not just being overly dramatic or melodramatic. That is a statement of cold, hard fact that the world and its beliefs and its purposes is always at odds with God's plan of salvation. Now, the way you can try to get away from that, if you want to be friends with the world and still be a Christian, is you remove the offensive part. The offensive part is this. Let me make it real clear and real simple. And it starts in the Garden of Eden. The offense is this. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's a, that's a statement in the book of Hebrews. And God told Adam and Eve, the day that you sin, you die. Why didn't they? God gave them the skins of the animal. Blood was shed. The only way to escape death is through this blood atonement. And that goes all the way through, and it's certainly true in Moses. It is true in the Passover. And the hostility broke, the hostility breaks out in the scene of history more clearly every once in a while, like the Passover. In the Passover, the plagues are coming upon Pharaoh, and he hardens his heart. The plagues, he hardens his heart. The plagues, he hardens his heart. So finally, the last one is the firstborn of Egypt will die. In fact, all firstborn will die unless there's been a sacrifice and blood put on the doorpost. You know the story? And that is reaffirming that theme that goes from Genesis to Revelation. What what do I mean? Just think about Revelation. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. That's in Revelation. But here we have back in the Passover, this blood. We had it in Isaac being brought up to be offered. There had to be a substitute. There had to be a payment for sin. 
And if we believe that and preach that and affirm that and tell everybody else about that, that only the blood of Jesus could wash away sins, we will remain the enemy of the world. Because that offends them. If we hide that fact and create a Christianity that's going to make the world a better place to live in, they'll welcome us. They'll say, that's fine. You can come help us solve us our problems. As long as you don't tell us about that blood atonement, everything's okay. And that's precisely what's going on across the board today in the religious world. We have a, a form of religion with the power thereof. And I'm telling you, the power is in the blood atonement. And now the hostility broke out in the scene of history with Moses. Either the blood was going to be on the doorpost or the judgment will be indiscriminate. Everyone dies without the blood. And even if you were Hebrew, this is by faith, by the way. Imagine if you're one of these Hebrews and Moses says, well, here you've got to take the lamb and here's how you do it. You have to... Go into your house and, you know, the first Passover. And if you're one of these Hebrews, and what if you said, uh, you know what, I don't buy this. You know, why do we got to go through all of this, uh, you know, shedding blood? That's kind of a distasteful thing anyhow. Let's just forget it. If somebody did that, what would have happened? Exactly. They would have died with the Egyptians. They weren't saved because they were Jewish. They saved because of the blood. Are you following me? So that's what's going on. So he chose rather to endure ill treatment. Oh, that's how we got on that. I believe this is still true. Now, at different times in history, this is not so intense. We are blessed in America that at least so far, for the most part, we can preach whatever we want. And people may hate us, but they're not going to come and lock us up. Or uh, Although, you might get a ticket. Did you hear the story Mark was telling? Mark Orland, one of our... Uh, he's that big, the tall guy here that does street ministry, comes to church here. He has a nursing home ministry, so he can't always make it on Sunday. He and a bunch of buddies were out witnessing and preaching the gospel. And some of them went over in front of this sex world out there, down in, yeah. And they were out there preaching the gospel on the street, and the guy from sex world looked out and got annoyed, he called the police, and the police came and gave him a ticket. It's illegal to preach in Minneapolis? Oh, you can't talk about Jesus in Minneapolis. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> well, it's funny, though. They, they've been, like Mark said, we've been preaching this all over everywhere else. They didn't care. Yes. Uh, I just came back from New Mexico on a short vacation, and in, up in Farmington, New Mexico, there's this adult video store. I mean, a huge red sign. But there's a billboard that the Catholic Church put up, but it says, Jesus is watching you. And then there's nobody, nobody's parked there. They walked around the Well, anyhow, um, the point is, there's degrees of this. I mean, there's times in history in, in certain societies where everybody who's a true believer is killed. That's happened often on does some places, and, and there's less, more or less, but the basic hostility is always there. Yes. Did you have something? Richard? I just had a question that's been tumbling around here for the last few minutes. And uh, he says, by faith, uh, or faith is the evidence of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. And since they didn't receive the promise back then, what was their hope? Um, the, the hope. That's a good question. Let me repeat it. Being how they didn't receive the press right back then, what was their hope? Well, I'll say two things. We'll start first with what we know about the Hebrew thinking in the Old Testament. They, the Jewish people had an idea uh, that we call corporate solidarity, just to, to um, help you understand theologically. They viewed themselves as one. And so if you're Abraham's son, you may be 50 generations later but you're still one with Abraham. Now, not only does it look back, it looks forward. So when Abraham received the promise of many descendants, 
and that this one seed, singular, would come through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham, in the past, lived in solidarity with all those future descendants, even though they did not yet exist. And so it was his promise, even though the fulfillment doesn't happen until later through the posterity, because they viewed themselves as one, as a collective whole, as a sort of a... Uh, What's Walter Kaiser's term for that? It's like a cluster of grapes. It's a composite singular, but I can't remember. That's that's not his term. But there's this idea of the one and the many that are all yet still one, but yet still many. All right. And so their hope, Moses' hope, was that all the promises that gave that God gave Abraham, the promises He gave Isaac. The promises he gave Jacob, the promises that Jacob passed on to the twelve tribes when he blessed them, the promise to the Levites, the promise to the tribe of Judah that a scepter would arise, that all of those things lived on in the people that were yet to go into the promised land, even if Moses himself didn't. Alright? That's the primary understanding in the Old Testament. Now, they also had a view of eternity but it isn't as filled out as it is in the New Testament. I believe they had an eternal hope. Moses saw the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Okay, But the the living on in the posterity was more how they expressed it in the Old Testament. Even back as far as the first two human beings, the promise given to Eve and Adam about um, the child of the woman who crushed the serpent's head means that all of the descendants from then on are living in God's promise, and so everyone is justified by faith from you that first promise. Right. That's the, that's the unity of the Bible. It's always justification by faith, and the promises that we may hear about, the one given to Eve, the one given to Noah, the one given to Abraham, we believe that, that those are true, and that that's real, and that that's how it lives out. So that's a very good question. But it's, it's very much tied up with this idea of corporate solidarity. It's hard for us Americans to get that. Because we've been taught from day one, individual, individual, individual. It's what America is all about. I'm going to blaze, I'm going to be Davy Crock, blaze my trails, I don't need anybody. Or Daniel Boone or whoever, I don't know. Uh, that's sort of the ideal of America is it total individualism. Nobody's, don't tread on me, nobody's going to tell me what to do. But if we want to understand the Bible, we've got to understand Jewish thinking, not American thinking. And the Jewish thinking is we live as a whole people. We live and die together. We're a people together. And we're not, we not only have this solidarity with one another living, we have solidarity with everybody that went before us who had this faith, and everyone who'll come after us who hasn't yet come on the scene of history, we're still one with them. And that is a biblical idea. But what we need to realize is that this solidarity is not genetic, it's in faith. And that's what comes up in Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 9, where Paul says, not all, not all who are descended from Abraham are truly of Abraham, because they didn't, if you don't have Abraham's faith, the solidarity is broken. The solidarity isn't just genetic, it's also in faith, and that's how we can get into it by being people of faith, yes. I think one of the things that, that uh, in the story of Moses, one of the things that I've inferred from his story is the love he had for his people. And even though the movie is just a movie, when when he ran into when that Egyptian was hurting and torturing the uh, one of his Hebrew brothers, I guess not brother, but one of the Hebrews, he killed the Egyptian as mm-hmm. a result. But the love that that he it's inferred is from reading the story. Is is that could you consider that a typology? Uh, uh, Moses loving his people so much and he leads them out. Like Christ loving his people. Yeah, it comes up later in Hebrews, in uh, it says twelve. Now it says choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Notice it doesn't just say to enjoy being an Egyptian, but enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Being the son of Pharaoh's daughter created a great opportunity for pleasure. Egypt afforded that. And so he was, so the way it's spoken of in Hebrews 11.25, he was not merely choosing to um, have, uh, identify with the Jewish slaves, which he did. But he was choosing against the entire world system and everything it had to offer because that's what Egypt stands for. 
This is the best that the world has. You can't ask for any more. And he would rather be a slave with these Jewish vagabonds in the wilderness. I was just thinking, it says enduring ill treatment with the people of God. Not only that, he, he endured ill treatment from the people of God. <laughs> That's kind of ironic, but it's true. Well, let's do our cross-references, and we'll pick up this in um, verse 26. I have a bunch of cross-references here. Um, Kathy, could you look up Psalm 84.10? And Linda, um, Matthew 5.10-12. And Linda Lewis, Luke 12.16-21. We'll do those and then see if we've got time for any more. What was the last one? Uh, Luke 12.16-21. Yeah, Luke. So we'll start with Psalm 84 and verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. That's a great verse. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. It's sort of like I'd rather just stand at the door and look in to what God's doing than to be be an insider in the world. That verse helped me a lot uh, when I was uh, graduated from Bible college and I was just sending out charge cards of J.C. Penney, um, 20,000 charge cards a day I was sending out. I was running his mailing machine. And back then we were being taught that charge cards are from the devil. I don't know if they were or not, but <laughs> Christians believed that in the early 70s. It was like, you know, the world system was gotcha. And so I'm sitting there, Lord, I'm sitting putting these people in bondage. <laughs> Is, it, is this why I went to Bible college? When, when are you going to use me? When am I going to be a preacher? When is something going to happen? And I, I was just, finally I got to the point where I just felt like I was wasting my life and I couldn't take it anymore. And I went down into the prayer room down there to Bible college and that was the verse that, that I found in my prayers. I was reading through the Psalms and I found that passage that Kathy just read. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God and through the scripture, it was as if the Lord was saying to me, did I promise you some great position? It was, you know, you do whatever. You know, if the Lord wants me to send out church cards, why, what am I complaining? At least I get to be a doorkeeper in the house of God. I get to, get to go. I get to be a part of the church. So but what else do I want? Good point. Okay, the next passage was uh, Matthew five ten through 12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for there is a kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So there's that same theme. The same way they persecuted the prophets, but you have a reward in heaven, so you have a reason to rejoice. Now obviously, this is only going to be true if you have faith. I mean, if you don't have faith, somebody says, well, you're going to have a heavenly reward. Really? Um, it doesn't seem worth it unless you really believe that Christ is risen and he's in heaven. Okay, Luke 12, 16 to 21. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room in to store my crops. So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater in there. I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul shall be required of you. Then those Whose will these things be which you have provided? Then whose yeah, whose yeah. will they be? Yeah. Whose will? Those yeah. In other words, uh, you're you're going to die, and you're going to face the judge, and and uh, somebody else is going to enjoy your uh, what's in your bars. Isn't that an interesting parable? The guy talks to himself. Soul, thou art rich. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, Linda. But there's a verse that says basically some people are hoarding up stuff so God can give it to somebody else. That's in the proverb. Hoarding up something for the righteous. That's what I 
in the Proverbs. Proverbs. Well, the the guy here um, fixed his his hope on uncertain riches, and um, as we've seen in the cataclysmic things that have been happening in nature, there's awful. Just a, a life on the face of the earth is tenuous and uncertain, and you never know your wealth might be here one day and gone tomorrow. But do you have hope in God? You know, when they tell stories about the Great Depression when the stock market crashed, people jumping out of the windows in New York City. Um, obviously, they weren't trusting God. They were trusting their money. Yes? James warns about that. Go to now, you all the mysteries that have come upon you. You know, when people lose it all, you know, prosperity and money and they can do you any good in the day of judgment. I mean, then people aboard the Titanic, they went down, I mean, they were rich, millionaires and stuff. Yep. Yeah, we need the Lord. And um, if you can see the facts of this and the need for the blood atonement and what Christ did and that He's truly raised from the dead, you're blessed. And I believe that when Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That is true in every case. The way I was... Did anybody get to hear, uh, me, I interviewed Jan Markell on the radio. That was very fun. <laughs> I got to be in this seat, and she was in that one. Usually it's the other way. It's a role reversal. And I asked Jan about her life. And here she was, a little Jewish girl, 11 years old, and somebody took her to a church to hear a Jewish evangelist. And, and she told me on the air, I don't, I said, how did you, how did you understand that? And she says, I don't know. I don't know, but I just knew that it was true. And it was God took the veil off of Jan's spiritual eyes. And it says in uh, um, her dad was an Orthodox Jew, and here, he, here she's taken to a church to hear this evangelist, and God saves her when she's 11 years old. All kinds of people hear the same thing. If you, if you believe it, God took the veil off. That's all I can say. Um, and it says that in 2 Corinthians 3, there's a veil at the reading of Moses. So you read Moses, the Bible's there, the Gospel's there. Anyhow, so that was really fun. I don't know. Jan, I think, has got a tape up. She got a tape of a book. Kind of, I interviewed her about her life story and how she ended up in the ministry and what else happened in her life. That's was fun. That was Friday on Joyce Harley's show. I was a guest host. I was Joyce, and Jan was Jan. <laughs> yeah, I was... Uh, I, it was a, it was a fun role reversal. I think it's a lot easier interviewing than being interviewed. 